Welcome to the fourth episode of the Eclectic Highway. This time we have Nick Molden from Emissions Analytics as our special guest. Now Nick is so knowledgeable when it comes to transportation that I had to run a poll on LinkedIn to decide what topic to focus on with him. Now this episode is a bit on the long side, so without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. This is a good one. So Nick, for listeners who may not know you, can you talk a bit about your background and what you're working on now? Yeah, um, I'm actually an economist by background and, and also, uh, relatively speaking, compared to you and many others, a newcomer uh, to this area. I only really got into it in 2011. Uh, and this was motivated, I guess, thinking about my economics background. This is really a question of market failure rather than some deep engineering motivation. And very simply, I was bugged by the fact that fuel economy labels in Europe seem to bear no relation to reality. Uh, and this this was leading to consumers being disappointed and manufacturers building the wrong sort of cars. And I was intrigued as to why this was uh, and what potentially to do about it. That one topic then suckered me into then all sorts of other topics, not least NOx emissions and then the whole Dieselgate uh, fallout. But this is, continues to be um, you know, an extremely live topic. And in a way, we're coming full circle to where I started as CO2 comes right back to the top of the agenda uh, and reducing climate change emissions. So, you know, my mission is absolutely to uh, know what vehicles really do so policy and decisions can be made in such a way as we can you know, solve our environmental problems uh, in the most efficient way uh, with having the least social impact. And we're not trying to make people poorer or give them worse cars. We want to try and balance everything in the best possible way. Uh, and I've always thought, you know, proper test data and informing the market is, is the best way of doing it. So I guess that's the economics shining through. Um, and it sort of governs how I approach this topic. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I've been a big fan of yours and also emissions analytics now for the past several years. Can you talk a little bit about emissions analytics and what you do in that company? Yes. Yeah, so we've done um, essentially one thing and one thing only from the beginning, and that's PEMS testing. So portable emissions measurement system. So we, we strap these gas analyzers on vehicles and we go and drive them on the actual road. Now, at the time we started, this was almost unheard of in Europe and it was not that well known even in the United States, even though the equipment had existed for well over 10 years. Um, and I think it was generally seen as what you couldn't do reproducible testing it were the equipment wasn't very accurate and so it was a bit of a waste of time when you actually properly assess the equipment uh, and we did with sensors inc and they were very open and cooperative in showing what their kit could do it was quite clear this was actually now mature equipment which was really accurate and robust and so we decided actually right we're going to go and source large numbers of vehicles independently of regulators, independently of manufacturers, and devise our own on-road methodology, which actually, when RDE came along, there was quite a lot of similarity between what we'd sort of worked out from first principles and what eventually became RDE. 
Um, I don't lay claim to having been the leading light of RDE, not at all. There are uh, many people within the European Commission who are responsible for that. But in terms of the principles of how to do on-road testing in a robust way with robust equipment, that is what we showed was possible in 2011. And wind forward today, we've now tested around 2,500 vehicles. Uh, and the power of what we do is is the independence so it's our data we can publish whether it's good news or bad news the point is that we can put that information into the market and that helps guard against uh, things like you know regulatory capture and partial information disclosure by interested parties and and i hope hopefully that's acting to the the the, the greater good and and the health of the industry in the longer run yeah, and I really appreciate the independence, uh, like you said, of emissions analytics and sort of you guys, you're approaching it from just striving to obtain the truth. You're not biased one way or another. You, know, you just want to go out there and test these vehicles and report the results. I'm a big fan of that. I know a lot of other people are too. So thank you for doing that. Um, I do want to ask, you know, because we are in a crazy time right now, and I've asked my other guests the same question the last couple of episodes. How are you doing and how has COVID-19 changed your life during these last few months? And how has it changed how you work? I mean, clearly it has, in short-term practical sense, um, we've, you know, the amount of testing has been much reduced um, for one simple reason, actually. Um, not that it's been, it's not been banned uh, in, in Europe, um, but as soon as they shut the hotels, it made it practically what we do so much more difficult because what we do, we go and test vehicles in all sorts of environments. And this is not all done in a very antiseptic test track situation. We go into the field and test and sometimes literally into the field testing tractors or diggers or cranes and you name it, we, we, we can test it. Uh, and so as soon as that very simple logistical problem arose of hotels being forced to shut um, meant that we had to uh, pause a lot of our activity. But this was actually a fantastic opportunity suddenly to do important things rather than urgent things. And there's so many new areas uh, of pollutants that are not currently regulated or not regulated to the right level, or new uh, places uh, where you know, we're now beginning to understand the exposures, like in inside the vehicle cabin, um, that we've finally got time to look at properly and start developing uh, some methodologies. So that's sort of my life in the short run, um, which will hopefully bear fruit you know, from later in this year onwards. But I think also what the virus changes is... Um, you know, it really profoundly changes a number of things. And I'm, you know, I, I may be in a minority in, in thinking some of these things, but um, this will have a, probably a very beneficial effect on the passenger car. And there's, there's going to be a, a, a titanic tussle between the individuals making decisions essentially to switch from public transport to the private motor car and policymakers and city planners desperately trying to avoid uh, the traffic and the air pollution being wrecked in those city centres. So how to how to moderate that demand um, as people are forced back to work inevitably, and, and, and people will not only economically be forced back to work, but also human beings want to get together with one another. So I think the death of the workplace is exaggerated. 
So you will still have lots of people traveling into cities to work together. And the danger is, from a congestion and air quality point of view, is they shift the private car. That is why the role of bicycles is so important in that um, as people move from public transport, you need to get a sufficient proportion into other forms of private transportation, which are um, lower CO2 and less hogging of the road space. And if, if you don't get enough people onto those modes, then you will have a significant congestion problem. But I think it, in a way, it's going to be the heyday for the private car. I bet the used car market may well see a real bounce uh, as a result. So th this isn't um, obviously some sort of moment that you know, we'll all jump to some wonderful, green, environmentally friendly future. There's a lot of work that's got to be done to give people the right incentives to make sure we get to the right climate change and air quality um, end point. And in a way, the virus may have made that rather harder. On the flip side, what the virus does mean that you know, it is a bit of a rupture and politicians will... Uh, think of doing policies that they would not ordinarily think to do uh, and so that we may make some really dramatic and positive changes but I think it is it's going to be a real battle um, to, to, to guide um, everyone in the right direction um, post-virus uh, and uh, it's uh, the car is going to have a significant role. Yeah I really agree with you and I'm glad you mentioned that I think you're absolutely correct that you know public transportation is something that we've seen for years now as being sort of a greener alternative to try to get everybody on the same bus or train or whatever it is. But now with, with COVID-19 and the fear of the spread of this virus, I agree with you. I think people are going to be more and more now going back to individual cars. So it will be really interesting to see how this plays out with all these different dynamics working against each other. It, it should be emphasized. I mean, it, it's very easy to not look at the facts about particularly bus travel. I mean, bus travel in, in, in a lot of places, particularly in the developed world, has been falling year after year for many years. Um, um, London was one of the cities that bucked the trend um, because they massively increased service and, and, and reduced fares. But even that peaked a couple of years ago and has now been falling. So there's a, there's a natural tendency um, to move away from, 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 from bus transportation that was going on anyway. And I, the virus will have only accelerated that. And the danger, you only need a small number of people to shift from buses. And then the economics of bus transportation, the, the network economics of it, collapse. Uh, and so, and that's, a real, that's a real challenge that London and most major cities will face. Exactly. Very good points. So now let's kind of turn from COVID-19 and its implications a little bit and just attempt to answer the question of the day or the theme of this episode. What I want to try to attempt to answer with your help is what is the best route to CO2 reduction? So when we make that assessment, we have to consider lots of different factors. You kind of alluded to this earlier, but what are the factors that must be considered when making this assessment? There are many interlocking factors, as you say, but the key ones um, are a lot to do with the economics again. Um, and then we add in the virus, and sorry to bring it back to the virus, but the, the virus also puts in one very significant geopolitical consideration into this. Um, so particularly in relation to battery electric 
vehicles uh, in terms of the source of some of the key materials going into batteries and we are now quite possibly going towards a period of of geopolitical standoff growing trade war with China Um, and at a very high level it's possibly not the wisest thing to do to re-engineer the automotive industry of of the western world to be dependent for certain crucial materials on uh, 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 now a country with which we're in significant dispute with um, so that, that that is an added thing that the virus has brought and I think we need to be really careful um, politically that we don't go down a, a dangerous avenue but let's set that aside for a, for a moment let's pretend the virus has not happened um, and so what, what then is the best route uh, to CO2 reduction um, and it seems to be, you know, my my dissatisfaction with the, the the narrative and the debate at the moment is, for most governments, it seems to be whatever the question is, the answer is battery electric vehicles. There seems to have been a suspension of critic, critical judgment as to what the right course is. And many reasons for this, I, I believe, including that actually, you know, simple messages are much easier to give them complicated messages. Um, put that together with how embarrassing Dieselgate has been for European authorities. Um, so it is better not to have to talk about the internal combustion engine anymore. Because any time you talk about that, it reminds people of Dieselgate. Better to say we've got this new, bright, shiny thing which solves all our problems. It solves our climate change problems. It solves our air quality problems. It creates all sorts of new industrial and employment advantages. So let's build lots of gigafactories. Um, this, I think, is it's dangerously simplistic. Um, I'm not, by the way, a detractor from electric vehicles as vehicles from a driving experience point of view. And many of them are absolutely fantastic. Um, but that doesn't mean that's not sufficient for them to be the obvious solution to all these environmental problems in one go. Um, and there is also one other, you know, very practical thing. Even if, even if we could switch all the vehicles to battery electric vehicles today, um, the reality of it is that would lead to a massive increase in CO2, life cycle to CO2 emissions because of the higher, higher CO2 emissions involved in the manufacture of electric vehicles compared to ICEs. So, what we would be gambling is that the longevity of these electric vehicles and how they were used would deliver these net CO2 benefits through the life of these vehicles. So essentially, you have higher CO2 emissions now and you, you win later on. But that stewardship of those vehicles, it needs to be such that they, those gains are actually delivered in the end. And I get worried when there's cost today and benefits way out in the future um that's effect that's effectively the nature of of the gamble that we can deliver those co2 reductions if we can the typical life cycle model says a electric vehicle will halve the co2 emissions compared to an ICE. some higher some lower but that's about the average but it does require those benefits being delivered through quite a long useful life of, of that vehicle and so that that's a that's a political um, and uh, uh, you know, a, a 
issue you need to address with, with how consumers use and maintain those those vehicles. So there's there's those very big high level things. So I come to the conclusion that battery electric vehicles are one very significant and important tool in our overall task of reducing CO2. But they are not a dominant technology in such a way as we should put all our eggs in that one basket and just bombard it with public subsidy. Rather, there's some uncertainties, there's some risk uh, around this. So you need the optimal strategy is a diversified one. And governments are rubbish at picking winners as well. Uh, and so we should avoid picking winners. We should set up a market situation where technologies can compete on their merits. And it may be a fight between the existing technologies. It may be that future technologies come along. In a sense, it doesn't matter. We need to be able you know, to harness those technologies as they come along. Um, and so that's so. I think we need. It's, it's about creating those. Uh, the, the, the proper independent data to be able to really understand and know what works and what doesn't and create the right incentives. And as a part of that, I continue to believe and have for a long time that hybrids provide probably the single best tool at the moment for delivering rapid CO2 reduction, rapid adoption, because people understand it and, and, and don't suffer any big utility disadvantage. Uh, and they also can be, uh, they, they generally are extremely clean from an air quality point of view. So you can have, you can have about 30% CO2 reduction if we hybridized everything pretty quickly with relatively little customer resistance, with relative, no taxpayer subsidy. So I don't see, why wouldn't you bag that? Why would you not bag that while we figure out the supply chain issues, um, the uh, infrastructure issues uh, regarding other technologies, whether it's batteries or hydrogen or, or whatever else? And I think in a great messianic headlong rush towards battery electric vehicles, the hybrid has got overlooked. And I think that's a big mistake. Wow, I couldn't have said that better myself. You know, something you said there reminded me of this paper, and I'm wondering if you've seen it. The author is Sarah Jones, and I'm going to just kind of paraphrase the title, but it was something to the effect of, if electric vehicles are the answer, what was the question? <laughs> and she goes through many different scenarios, you know, health issues, environmental issues, traffic, and she kind of goes piece by piece, and it's a really great paper and shows how, you know, look, electric vehicles, while they have their place... And, you know, they're very good in certain areas. They don't really solve all of these problems that we're asking them to solve. So I think that was a very good answer. And I completely agree with you. I think hybrids have been very much overlooked. And, you know, when I see the latest UK ban that's been proposed, I think now for 2035, where now it actually does include hybrids, I believe. Um, I don't know if I've changed that recently, but, you know, hybrids are definitely something that have been overlooked. And I think they are the bridge, in my opinion, to our future. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that point, Kelly, it's really interesting that whether are hybrids to be banned in 2035 in the UK? Um, the and the answer is it, it depends who you ask in government. Um, I mean, the most often repeated answer is yes, all hybrids of all forms will be banned in 2035. Um, I don't believe that actually is what they really think behind the scenes, um, and this is my educated guesswork um uh, but i think it's again about simplicity of message 
unless they say we're going to phase out all forms of ICE by then, it, people won't be as focused as they could. Um, I don't think when it comes to it that they would actually ban um, hybrids because it makes absolutely no sense at all. Um, but it doesn't. But I think that's a, that's the wrong way of going about it because actually what you want to be doing is giving the market clear signals as to where it's going, not doing some weird game of second guessing. But exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, and I've done quite a bit of research into not just in the UK, but just a lot of these political statements made by governments that we're going to ban internal combustion engines in 2040 or some year in the future, right? And so if you dig deeper in some of those and you and you kind of you know read the fine print, a lot of them haven't actually said we're going to ban all IC engines. It's more like conventional IC engines, right? Where some form of hybridization is okay. Um, and of course, it's easy for politicians right now to promise things in the future. You know, they're probably not going to be in office when those dates come around. So I do think a lot of this is political. A lot of this is the simplicity of the message. Like you said, I think that's a really great way to kind of frame this. Um, so I, I agree with you. So, so correct me if I'm wrong. But it sounds like your answer to the question of what is the best route to CO2 reduction currently is hybrids. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Um, okay. So, well, without, yeah, absolutely. Without, um, I mean, well, there are other ways, like, for example, you could make um, fuel tax 10 times higher to squeeze down the number of vehicle miles traveled. You know, so so. But if we if we're saying we want to keep people's utility, you know, ability to travel about the same, so you ha- you have to address the inherent characteristics of the vehicle, then then yes, absolutely. I think and and what I mean, some something we published a while ago was essentially looking at you know how much CO two reduction do you get per unit of battery size? So if we hypothesized a world which is a good approximation, I think, still to, to the battery supply chain now of basically finite battery supply. So if you have finite battery supply, where is the best place to put that? Um, and the point was for about for every 100 kilowatt hour BEV you built, you could build 44, I think the number was, um, uh, normal hybrids. And that delivered 14 times more CO2 reduction. So in a, so in a way if 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 that finite battery supply is any good approximation of reality essentially every battery electric vehicle that is built today is crowding out 40 hybrid vehicles and actually not reducing CO2 as fast as we could so it does ultimately if you're talking about resource contention if if that is true then actually we should not be building battery electric vehicles right now. We should have a much more staged path through ever-increasing hybridization to give us the time to fix the supply chain constraints. And then we emerge some way down the road at a much fuller electrification. So if I take my argument to its logical extreme, we should positively not be building big batteried pure, pure BEVs. It's crowding out too many hybrids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And I I love that study that you referenced. And I, I reference it all the time. In fact, I just referenced it 
I gave a, a webinar on Saturday morning to the combustion community, and it's something we're doing every Saturday, um, which has been a great thing to do during the lockdown here. And I referenced that study and exactly that, like, you know, for you can make you can make a single large battery BEV versus take those resources and make a lot of hybrids. And at the end of the day, you're probably doing better at least currently, by making all of those hybrids. So I agree with you. So what when you say hybrids, though, so there are a lot of different types of hybrids, as you know. So when you say hybrids, are you talking about all of the hybrids, anywhere from a micro-hybrid all the way up to a plug-in hybrid? Or are you talking more specifically about full hybrids, mild hybrids? Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm primarily talking about full hybrids, um, which seems to be almost the one that few people, apart from Toyota, talk about anymore. Um, so, I mean, and the reason I say that is, I think an increasing proportion of what we think of just straight ICEs are actually now mild hybrids already, particularly in Europe. So, it makes so much sense for the OEM to mildly hybridise this. They're just doing it anyway. And actually, you don't you don't hear a lot of uh, noise about it. You don't see it shouted about in the brochures. But increasingly, these things are mildly hybridised. And that delivers, by our calculations, about 6% CO2 reduction. So in a sense, that, that's just happening anyway, because it makes so much sense. Plug-in hybrids are a thorny one um, because of the behavioral problem. Um, and, and, and the US has less of a problem than Europe. Europe, I think, partly because of the space constraints in streets and people's houses. Um, you know, po- Possibly a majority of plug-in hybrid owners rarely charge up their plug-in hybrid. And therefore, it's, wor- it's worse than the equivalent because you're just carting around some dead weight and some dead, mon- and some dead money. Um, but if you do charge them up, and particularly if you're someone who does lots of small journeys and can charge up in between times, it makes a huge amount of sense. So there has to be some sort of behavioral solution that wraps around plug-in hybrids, um, that geofences certain areas or creates some incentive, whatever it is. Um, I mean, at the moment, even in Europe, you know, in a, for some classes of company car owners, you're incentivized not to charge your car up. Um, because you get your fuel paid for by your company. So we're in a crazy situation in some countries that you buy these plug-in hybrids for the tax advantage and then you deliberately don't charge them up, which is crazy. Um, um, But that's not to say they're not actually a very clever technology and deployed in the right way could give us really significant uh, reductions. But you do need that behavioral solution, which is not really properly there yet. So by a process of elimination, then, the, where you're, you're left within the full hybrids, and those are the ones with typically a what, one and a half kilowatt hour battery, you can deliver up to about 30% reduction in CO2. Um, and that is... Um, you know what I mean, and it, we must remember Toyota. I think is probably the only manufacturer who's going to meet the 95 grams per kilometer fleet average um, CO2 target, and it's about 80% of their lineup is is full hybrids. So there, I mean, it's difficult to argue with that in terms of actually, you know, they've done it and it delivers significant CO2 reduction. Um, but so that's what I'm talking about. But they have become unsexy in the debate i mean as 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 those who the evangelists have moved on to battery electric vehicles it's rather left the full hybrids in a sort of netherland of unsexiness and 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 i think you know one of the other things holding it back is they have they've never been terribly great to drive in 
now that is a personal opinion but i think there is an opportunity for coming up with some some hybrids that are more captivating of the the consumer market and shed finally shed the sort of environmentalist image and actually they're just great cars that deliver fantastic fuel economy low co2 low criteria pollutants um if it, in a, if they could if they could fix that perception part of it i think that then um that that would help uh, a rebirth of of that sector yeah and i one of my goals of this podcast nick is i think with your help we're going to bring sexy back for the full hybrids so <laughs> Let's hope for the best. There. I'm not sure they ever ha- really had it, so it's a question of creating it for the first time. Um, but it's, okay. but, it, but you know, I believe in. You know, if it's a great technology, the fundamentals hopefully should shine through eventually. Um, and, and so, you know, and you know, who would not want a fairly rapid delivery of 30% reduction in CO2? Um, I mean, the figures that I see from the viruses, I think we're about 17% down on CO2 compared to last year because of the whole lockdown. So we could achieve double that through a, a, a relatively achievable hybridization of the fleet. I Yeah, I agree. And Toyota, Toyota is kind of leading the pack, like you said, on that. And at the same time, they're getting a lot of heat for sort of their marketing, you know, the self-charging self-charging hybrid kind of uh kind of tagline which you know i do see how some people may think that's misrepresentative but at the same time that is what happens right so it just people need to understand that there is an internal combustion engine in there as well and that is what's charging right charging the battery so yes yes i i it's a i probably don't comment on advertising campaigns um it's a it's a it's an, it's an interesting line <laughs> um, it, is, uh, it is. It does sound a bit like a perpetual motion machine, um, but uh, let's set that aside. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. You know, the, the, and, I, and I think that the, it goes to show that there is a huge amount of intellectual property in hybrids as well, and and there's good hybrids and bad hybrids. Um, that that's another thing that bothers me about the battery electric debate. Is it's like all battery electric vehicles are great without any discrimination you know there are some teslas amongst them who tend to be at the right at the top end in terms of efficiency but there are other battery electric vehicles that are not terribly efficient um and it's the same with internal combustion engines we all are used to um edmunds or motor trend rating things as you know good and bad you know they, we discriminate within that group hybrids deserve exactly the same thing there are some good hybrids and some bad hybrids and um, you want these things to be able to compete in the marketplace and those that deliver the best fuel efficiency and emissions should be the winners and uh, you know i think what i see from our test data is toyota seem to have um, been working at it sufficiently long and have really made the control algorithm so sophisticated they're delivering the probably the market leading reductions uh, at the moment um but they're not all the same we need to be discriminating we need data and we need to be discriminating we need to think uh, and that will hopefully chart the way to the right solution absolutely and that's where uh you know groups like emissions analytics really come in you know because you guys are independent and you can do this testing and it will really help us discriminate so again thank you for all the work you're doing there I do want to ask, so so you're a proponent of hybridization, which I, I also am. What are some of the challenges that you see to hybridization? Well, I think it is, 
it's it's the political challenge. It is the political challenge uh, because as soon as you start talking about things being outlawed, um, you know that really does cast an immediate um, uh, shadow um, uh, on, on that, particularly in the second-hand market. So I mean, in the short run, it doesn't affect the new market so much. But uh, people, would you buy a second-hand um, hybrid with your own money if, it, if there's a chance that it's going to get banned in a few years' time? Um, so, that, so the role of how the, the residual values um, affect then the, the the whole market need, needs to be understood. So I think you know that sort of policy that makes these sort of statements um, is dangerous, and, and and it is the you know the products need to be. I think the products could be better in terms of drivability. Uh, I think one of my frustrations of the automotive industry is that uh, actually whatever people say, people you know like a really good experience of driving a car, even if they're not a petrol head. Um, you know, actually, people ha- develop a connection with their car, and they like, um, you know, the way it behaves, and uh, and so people do actually want cars which put a smile on their face. Put it another way, and and I think hybrids have fallen into the worthy category, um, and I think that you know, someone who could come up with a, a, a really good performing uh, hybrid um, would help. So I think you know, th- those are those are the two things. Um, you know, the, the quality of the technology. I think you know we've tested enough. We've tested over a hundred hybrid vehicles. We know what it performs. You know that thirty percent is a is a good number. It's getting it you know, consumers to actually buy it. That's that's what we need to achieve. So that, we do need the admin, I suppose. Right. That's the big challenge. I, I agree. Um, yeah. I'll. I've been thinking about what a new tagline could be. So I'll, I'll definitely keep working on that. Um, so. What do you have coming up in the future? So do you have any projects coming up? I think our listeners might be interested in hearing about, you know, what's next for, for you and for Emissions Analytics. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, there's there many things, but two to, two to flag is that, uh, and it, it, it is a natural continuation from what we've just been talking about, is that, I mean, the other issue is, is vehicle weight. You know, there's been a long-term trend towards heavier vehicles. And in a way, battery electric vehicles are just a sort of culmination of that, where you add another four or five hundred kilos in, um, as it relates to tyre wear emissions. And this is so we've got now extremely stringently re- uh, regulated tailpipe and not regulated tyre wear emissions. Now, before anyone shouts at me, the manufacturer of tyres is clearly a quite a highly regulated thing. So it's not as if tyres are totally free of regulation, but their emissions are not regulated and they are a function of weight, amongst other things. So this is, this is definitely coming onto, onto the horizon of where you know, we, we, we see the emissions from tyres being orders of magnitude higher than the, the particle mass coming out of tailpipes. And, and this is largely a data-free zone Actually, that's not quite fair. There, there's been quite an extensive amount of research, but none of it has been designed to be comparative in the sense of, you know, take the worst, cheapest, you know, tyre and the highest premium tyre and how different are they? That's that's where we're missing the data. So so that's one area of distinct interest for us. And the other one is is what happens in the vehicle interior. I think everyone has the comforting notion that you, you close the door and you're sealed away in some bubble. Uh, the issue, the issue is that the uh, typically, you know, you 
are you will be driving well, you will be driving in the middle of the road and if you're up behind a dirty vehicle you will be inhaling virtually the raw exhaust if you've got limited filtration that that raw exhaust will be going directly into your cabin and then will hang around for a very long time um, we we've tested over a hundred vehicles um, for their particle concentrations in the cabin and it's quite often double on average inside compared to outside uh, and so you, you you're effectively sitting in your own little pollution chamber um, but which could very easily be solved with better filtration and again this is unregulated so this is this is and, and a filter will cost what fifty hundred dollars something like that so actually for a relatively cheap in incremental cost you could make a massive difference to the health exposure of of motorists um, and it, you know, when people do analysis of the figures, they tend to use the roadside pollution monitors. Uh, the issue with those is they tend to be set back a few meters from the roadside, uh, and, and therefore the, the pollution is diluted. If you take those same measurements right in the middle of the the road, where effectively you, you you're sampling from, it's many times higher. So actually, we we don't get a full appreciation of how high these exposures are. So to try and tackle this, we've done a lot of testing, but we've also got a, a, a European standardization process that I'm chairman of um, called um, SEN uh, Workshop 103. And we're very pleased to have got lots of people participating in it, including the California Air Resources Board, so uh, as well as lots of European representatives. So we've got a genuinely sort of global standardization group going to try and characterize and compare uh, vehicles. So my my objective is ultimately we'll be able to have a rating for vehicles to say how well you're protected um, when you're inside that vehicle. And in a way, maybe we don't need any regulation. We just need a labelling system, which and then let consumers make uh, make their own choices. Um, so hopefully by hopefully by early next year we'll have a a resolution on this and uh, start making you know start making a difference. Yeah, yeah. So. You've scared me now. I'm I'm afraid to get in my car and drive home today. <laughs> but um but I <clears throat> I agree just, you know, more information for the consumer the better. It doesn't mean everything has to be regulated, but like you said, you know, put the label on there, let the consumer decide um, you know, what they're what they're willing to deal with or whatever. I think that that's a that's a very good solution. So very two very very upcoming interesting projects. I know I will be very interested in following and I look forward to seeing the results from those. So um, on the last episode, Graham and I both talked about what we drive. Um, I think, if you don't mind telling the audience, what, what do you drive? I drive a 3-litre uh, diesel Jaguar XF. Um, and I think the, in the immediate reaction of uh, at least some listeners may be that that must be horrifically dirty actually it is for the size of vehicle um extremely fuel efficient um and uh, and very good for particle emissions less good for for nox emissions it has to be said but it delivers a fantastic driving experience and a really good fuel economy for its size um and i have to be honest the, the i i love the car a lot but i've been it's now almost eight years old and uh, I've been looking to upgrade um, I've not been able to find a car that's better 
Mm-hmm. At all. What do you and mean? It, what do you mean by better? Well, that delivers some better combination of uh, utility, um, you know, driving experience, emissions, fuel economy. Um, it seems to me that whichever vehicle you look at, it's slightly worse. So um, now, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating to make, slightly make a point, but uh, it, it does play to you know, a view that I have is that you know we made a mistake when we started overly downsizing engines. Um, and this was particularly prevalent in Europe. I mean, I think the nadir of it was when, you know, a one-litre gasoline engine started powering a Ford Mondeo, um, which uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if the Mondeo is in, I don't think it's in the US, but there's a large sedan with a one-litre one turbocharged gasoline engine. You know, that was, that was you know, that, that was downsizing gone silly. Um, and, 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 and actually, many, uh, you know, when they downsized engines, often the fuel economy was no better and sometimes worse than the slightly bigger engine. And so, that, so I think, you know, for the size of that vehicle, actually a three-litre engine is not – is probably the best-sized engine. Now, we could have an argument as to whether I should drive fewer miles or I should drive more slowly or whatever it is, um, or should I just have a more modest car. But for that size vehicle, that is the optimal size of engine. And the, and the emissions regulations, um, particularly in Europe, forced a downsizing, which gave great lower official figures. But the reality of it was they were hardly better. So we made the cars worse because a two-litre engine will not be as fun to drive as a three-litre engine. So the cars have been made worse to, to deliver spurious reductions in CO2 on official counts, but not, not the benefit in reality. Um, and I, So I think the, the internal combustion engine did it, you know, by the fact we went down that route, it did itself a, dis, uh, a disadvantage, and it laid it open to, you know, what, we emissions analytics have showed is the growing gap between the official label and uh, and the real world in Europe pre WLTP, um, which sort of cast a cloud over the internal combustion engine. Actually, what it was doing was was foreshadowing actually a failure of the European regulation to properly label uh, vehicles. Compare that to the United States with the Monroney label, um, which is according to our testing bang in line with reality. You know, it's one or two issues here and there, but on average, it's bang in line. You haven't had the same out of control downsizing, and you've probably moved from a point where engines were probably a bit bigger than they needed to be down to a level that's probably about right. Um, so, so yeah, that. So, yep, I, I hold my hands up. I do have a big internal combustion engine, um, but actually, you know, there's there's actually an important message that comes out of that as to, you know a wrong turn that I think um, Europe took. So are there places there in the UK where you're not allowed to drive? That's a diesel, you said, right? So are there places where you're not allowed to drive that vehicle currently? Uh, no. Uh, if I, so if I, it is a Euro 5 vehicle. So if I, if I drive into the centre of London, I have to pay the ultra-low emission zone charge, which has now been increased to £15 a day. Uh, so to drive into this, the congestion charge and the ULEZ on top of that. So I'm paying... Um, so what is probably over $30 equivalent per day to go in. 
So, which is a decent incentive not to do it, and so I, I don't <laughs> tend to do it unless unless forced to. Um, but but uh, well, the, the good thing about policy in Britain is it generally does not work on the basis of prohibition. It puts a market price on something and then lets the person choose. Um, and so I can drive into London in if I like, as long as I pay up. Okay, very good. Okay, so to end on a lighter note, and we are we are pretty much done with the interview now, but I do have one last question um, that I ask all of my guests, and I'm curious what you have to say to this one. So can you think of one fun fact about you that our listeners might not be aware of that you want to share with them? Um, this has awful reminiscences of when Theresa May, our former Prime Minister, was asked this question. She came up with some toe-curling uh, answer, which helped seal her political fate. So I have to say, I'm a bit nervous about answering this at all. And uh, <laughs> Be careful. Um, Be careful. Uh, well, you know, OK. So, uh, and, and given we're sort of, the theme here is engines and the like. Um, so uh, there is a... Uh, I, I follow a particular sport called Speedway, um, which is, is not very big in the US at all. I mean, there's, there, there's some tracks in, um, in, in Southern California. Um, it's basically it's sort of short track dirt racing. Um, but these are, these are bikes with um, 500cc methanol engines, uh, single cylinder, four stroke engines, uh, which accelerate fast. They don't have any brakes or gears. Um, and they accelerate faster than drag cars, and you you have men racing around these small dirt ovals uh, with them. Anyway, so this, this is a this is a uh, uh, I, I marvel at this sport. I mean, you obviously have to be slightly crazy to do it because it is very dangerous. Um, but the sheer power, beauty, simplicity of these engines, creating this amount of power. Um, and uh, entertainment, and I have actually might done it uh, a few times myself, and I can testify. I can testify it is a hair-raising experience, um, but it does it does really um, put you at one you, with your engine. You know, you're sitting on top of this extremely powerful motor and sliding. You 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 slide round the corners there. So it's all in the throttle control and the weight distribution. So it means, but it means you you have to be really at one with your machine. So it made me think. You know, in, in uh, this really is almost the ultimate version of hugging your engine. It is. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, you're so connected with it. So uh, it's the beauty of the. Um, oh, I think the ultimate beauty of the internal combustion engine. Very good, very good. Uh, yeah, I was going to try to make it a, a tie back to the hug your engine, but you did it for me, so very good. <laughs> so, okay, Nick, this has been this has been awesome, uh, very insightful for me. I think our audience is going to learn a lot and be very very interested in what you have to say here. So, thank you so much. And you know, you and I haven't actually, I don't believe we've ever met in person. So, I'm hoping that you know, in the not too distant future, we're able to do that. So I look forward to that. Absolutely. Uh, well, look, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me um, and keep up the great work with the, this podcast. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, we, we shall meet soon. Very good. Thanks a lot, Nick. Take care. Thanks, Kelly. Bye-bye. If you want to leave feedback for this episode, check out the link to the LinkedIn thread in the show notes, where we can have a discussion of this show's content. And you can follow us on social media, on Twitter, at Eclectic Highway, on Instagram, at The Eclectic Highway, and on LinkedIn, Peter Kelly Senecal. 
And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show. It's now available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or you can grab the RSS feed or listen directly at eclectichighway.com. Remember, guys, the future is eclectic.